passage quite closely tonight. So if there is a Bible at the end oops, of your pew, then do grab it. Yes, and this. Oh, I'm so sorry, I've got my talk in the most bizarre format. Involves many post-it notes. Honestly, what can you do? Yes, thank you. This is not to be recommended. Um, thank you. Have I got any more bits here? No, that's it. Excellent. Right. Um, well, it's lovely to be back. We have been on two weeks holiday, so I'm glad, you know. You're all here. That's excellent news. Um, we were at a wedding last weekend on the Isle of Man, and um, I sat at the reception next to the father of this young groom, and the father told me the story of how his son had come to propose to his lovely wife. I can see John making a sign at me to move across. Fair enough. Let's do that. Right. Um, it was a great story, so I'm going to tell it. Um, this young chap had been given, when he was like in his young teens, a ring, which was a very, very precious family heirloom, a ring worth an awful lot of money, an engagement ring, and, and the dad had said to him, it, it had been his granny's ring, and he said to him, I am giving you this ring, I want you to guard it, I want you to treasure it, I want you to look after it. And then when the time comes, if and when you meet a woman who you would like to ask to marry you, then pass this ring on, pass it down the generations um, because it is such a precious thing um, and I'm entrusting it to you. So this dear young lad um, decided that he had found the woman that he would like to propose to and he got on a train to Edinburgh to propose to her because he worked in London, she was in Edinburgh. So he got on this um, train and he had a little suitcase and it had a few things in it. One was the ring, one was a massive bottle of very expensive champagne and actually I don't know what else was in there but I suspect it was pyjamas, underpants, whatever toothbrush. Um, anyway, he put this on the train. When he got to Edinburgh, he got off the train um, and obviously went to take his suitcase with him and it had gone. It had gone and in its place was a very similar looking suitcase. So he took that one off the train but he, he stood there on the platform stunned thinking, this is a disaster now. Not only have I lost this incredibly precious piece of jewellery that's been in our family for generations, but I, I have nothing with which to propose to this young woman. So he thought, shall I just get back on the train and not bother, call the whole thing off? But no, he thought it through and decided to go ahead. So he went to a sweet shop and bought a Haribo ring and a, 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 some sort of can of fizzy um, elderflower. And he went to see her and he said, would you marry me? And handed her this Haribo. And she did say yes, she would marry him, which is quite astonishing um, when you think about it. <laughs> um, so that was all good, except that he still had this disastrous situation to deal with and to tell his dad that he had lost this ring. Anyway, to cut a long story short, he did tell his parents and they were devastated. But meanwhile, this stranger had genuinely picked up his suitcase and realized that he had left his suitcase, similar looking case, behind. And so he opened it up and found in it this young groom, Chappie, who was getting married, um, had had a stroke very young. And so he always carried an emergency thing with his name on and the number of the emergency stroke unit. So the dear stranger Chappie 
phoned the stroke unit and said, this is unusual, but please, are you able to contact this person because I want to give them back some luggage that I've taken by mistake? So the NHS, let's hear it for the NHS. They actually located him and phoned him and said, this person is saying they've got your luggage. Would you like it back? He was like, yes, I would. And um, they swapped back suitcases and he was able to then repropose with this incredible ring. So not only did he then, um, you know, well, he hadn't really guarded it very carefully, had he after all, but um, he did then get to pass it on down the generations. And obviously we got to see this beautiful ring at the wedding. All this to say that actually, as I was coming to speak about this letter to Timothy, I thought there was a, there's a little bit of a similarity there because 2 Timothy 1.14 says this. It says, guard the good treasure entrusted to you, Timothy, with the help of the Holy Spirit living in you. So this is 2 Timothy 1.14. Guard the good treasure or the deposit that's been entrusted to you with the help of the Holy Spirit living in you. So we get this treasure in the gospel and in the early teachings of what the gospel actually is and what it meant that Jesus had died and been raised from the dead. We get that entrusted to us as believers. And we are asked to do everything we can to never let it get diminished and corrupted, but to pass it on. And if you flip over to 2 Timothy 4.2, at the end of the letter, Timothy has been building up through this letter to this. He says, I solemnly urge you, Timothy, proclaim the message. In other words, guard it and proclaim it. We're not being given something to kind of put away in a safe and keep, keep in that way. We are being asked to guard something and to pass it on through the generations, to proclaim that message. And so in between those two bits of the letter to Timothy, we get a few threads going on, which all happily come out in our little passage tonight. The first of those is endure through hardship. If you've been here, you will have picked up this message from Paul to Timothy. Endure in spite of obstacles and challenges and opposition. And in verse 12 there, you get Paul basically saying to Timothy, hey, this is going to be normal for you. If you're a believer, you will get some opposition. You will get people and things that throw you off course but endure, endure through hardship. And he mentions these places where he experienced suffering and persecution. One of them is Lystra, where Timothy is actually from. And if you read back in the book of Acts, you'll see that in Lystra, the opposition to, to Paul telling the gospel got so violent that they dragged him out of the city and stoned him and left him thinking he was dead. As it turns out, he wasn't quite dead. And as he says to Timothy, you've, you've lived this with me. You know that I've endured through hardship and yet God has rescued me at every turn. And the other thing, apart from enduring through hardship, is something that this letter does quite a lot of, which is warning 
warning. And if you think about this, this is a letter. This is a letter you're reading, like reading someone else's mail. So it's quite a specific situation that's going on through Timothy's uh, letter. And Paul keeps referring to things like wrangling over words. He talks about godless, profane chatter. He talks about swerving from the truth. And he names these two men, which is slightly unfortunate, you always feel, when you're named for, for doing something not good. Um, it, says, it says Hymenaeus and Philetus have, been, have, been, have swerved from the truth of the gospel themselves, and they are now like gangrene, he says. What they're doing, like teaching people stuff that's not the gospel. He says that, that, that their talk is spreading like gangrene and upsetting the faith of some. So I wonder what they were doing, what they were saying. He says, Timothy... Avoid senseless controversies and quarrels. And on the one hand, you get him literally saying, avoid these people. And on the other hand, you get him saying, uh, correct people gently and with patience. And it's an interesting journey, isn't it, for us sometimes to think, is there sometimes somebody who we simply need to avoid? And is there sometimes a courage that we need to correct someone or push back on something with the gospel as far as we've understood it, the truth of the gospel, where we need gentleness and patience to do that. I don't know how good you are with your road signs, but um, we warnings, warnings are interesting in the culture, aren't they? I don't think we like warnings much in this culture. We're like, hey, hey, don't you give me a warning. I'd rather find out for myself, you know, what I, what I want to do. And then you sort of walk straight over a cliff or whatever it was because you, you didn't take the warning. Um, but there's, there's um, actually a fabulous warning. Do you know what, what shape a warning sign is for those of you who, with a motor? I try, you're absolutely right. I had to look that up to, um, to reassure myself. And actually, all these signs are confusing, aren't they? Because I cycle a lot. And I realized recently I got confused between which color means what. And there's a, there's a sign with a bicycle on it. And I've become confused about whether it means do cycle or whether it means don't cycle. Don't cycle. What's the sign that's like do cycle? Isn't there? <gasps> Who would like to contest that? What? What's a blue? Does a blue one mean do cycle? <laughs> anyway, if you get, there's, there's, I mean, it's tough, isn't it? So many signs. But um, yeah, I don't think we're very good at taking warnings. I don't think so. And um, there, was a, there was a great side I saw that was a yellow triangle, to be fair. So I should have known it was a warning. But it had a picture of somebody right on the edge of a cliff. And then all these waves like that. So it was clearly water. And someone like me is thinking, oh, excellent, you know, let's run and, run and jump. And then the only thing was there was a little sign underneath saying danger, deep water. But do you know what I mean? We, I think we've got a bit like, oh, you know, it's a warning, but, you know, it'll be fine. So let me just say, in this context, this warning is an absolute gift to us. And you can pick up, can't you, that Paul loves Timothy and so this warning now functions like this. It diverts him from danger, doesn't it? Warnings usually look ahead to something and they're saying, don't do that. Don't go that way. They're trying to uh, keep you from um, 
getting onto the right, the wrong path. They're trying to get you to stay on track. They're trying to keep you alive. And I wonder if St. Paul were here this evening and he wanted to come up to you and take you by the shoulders, if he loved you dearly like he loved Timothy, and if he was going to say to you, wake up, my friend, watch out, because you're heading this way and you need to change course. What is it he would want to warn you about tonight, I wonder? Interesting. What would he want to warn you about? out of sheer love for you? Is there any one you need to avoid? Is there any change of course that you need to make to stay out of danger and to guard the precious, precious faith that's been deposited into your life? uh, Paul very kindly gives Timothy two ways that he can avoid what he calls here, these, these, these false teachers who are both deceiving and deceived. And he gives us two ways that Timothy can stay on the right track. And so we're going to look a bit more closely at this passage, and we're going to look at what those two things are. And now, in the Greek, which I do Greek for complete dummies, but even I could tell looking at it, that um, in verse 10 and verse 14, in the Greek, it's the same little phrase here in this passage. It's this, and it doesn't really come out in the translation. But both times it says, you, however, or but you... You know, he's, he's, he's setting this passage up to be a contrast with something else. So he's essentially contrasting those that are living destructive and distorted lives. Those have swerved away from the truth and they're teaching and persuading other people into the same. And you will have seen from Nathan's talk last week, I think, that there is a frightening list of things that people will do as they swerve into destruction and into distortion. And Paul himself says, Timothy, you've watched me. You've made this journey with me. You've lived alongside me. Look at my behavior. By contrast, actually, it's a, it's a bold thing to say, isn't it? Look at how I'm living my life. Look at my faith. Look at my character. Look at how I've endured. Timothy, don't do that. Do this. Do this. So there's going to be two ways that he tells Timothy he can stay on track. Guard that deposit, that treasure that's been given to him and pass it on. One, I'm going to tell you these right now and then we're going to unpack them a bit together. One is get the right people around you. And two is read the Bible. Get the right people around you and read the Bible. Now first... Timothy's father was a Greek and not a believer. So it's actually a beautiful thing that in this passage, Paul refers to Timothy's mother and to his grandmother who were Jewish and then became believers um, and just, just reminds Timothy how they have taught him the sacred writings. They've taught him to know, not even just read, but to know the Holy Scriptures. And then when they themselves trusted Jesus, they showed him how those scriptures pointed to Jesus, how all along the story so far was all about Jesus. 
and how Jesus himself fulfilled and completed everything, uh, all the ways God, God had been at work up until that time. So these two women are actually incredible women who, as we know, invested in this young Timothy. And then here's Timothy now shaping the early church. Here are we benefiting from the letter that was written to him and knowing that he then went on to shape and lead the church. What an investment. What an investment they made. But you know, not all of us have that biological um, heritage of faith, do we? Many of us look around, there's no one in our families who are trusting into Jesus and who can teach us about the gospel from a young age. So if you do have that in your life, I tell you what, take a moment to thank some of those people and just be thankful before God for a moment that people have sown into your life since before you were born, some of us. You are blessed to have been had this treasure handed to you from such a young age. But some of us look around, we can't see anybody who's, who's a person of faith who will urge us uh, to endure and, and deepen our faith and our lives with Jesus. What are we going to do? Timothy says, get the right people around you. I mean, Paul, sorry, says, get the right people around you. Pursue people who will invest in your faith. People who have remained true and constant. And this is important. People who will spur you on to endure when you feel like giving up. When you're doubting, when you're fed up, you're cynical, you're disappointed. Who are the people who will help you to push on? To not give up, to endure in the face of difficulty and in the face of doubt. Who is that? And I know when I've been through one particularly uh, bad time, when circumstances were absolutely horrific, and I realized I had become cynical, I'd become angry, I was disappointed. I didn't believe God was good, really. And I, I searched out, I came to a point where I knew I was either going to do something else or I was going to find ways to feed my faith. And actually, that wasn't, in that instance, anything local. It was um, teachings that I picked up online, and I could just sort of feel that they were reviving my faith, the stories from around the world of God at work. And actually, over time, and, you know, I got some prayer, I did some other things to feed my faith. But, you know, we are blessed, aren't we, all over the globe, really, with different ways that we can uh, feed faith. So who, who has God given you? People who will help you to keep going. And the other thing then, the second thing that Paul encourages Timothy to do is read the whole Bible. And again, he goes back to dear old Lois and Eunice, who he names in chapter one, because he says, they helped you to know the sacred writings. And of course, he's talking about the Jewish scriptures, which have become our Old Testament. But they clearly showed Timothy how those Jewish writings pointed to Jesus. And now we are so blessed with this incredible synergy between the Old and New Testaments. 
And, you know, people will argue over the number, but there's about 280 direct quotes from the Old Testament that are in the New Testament, but there are thousands of allusions and references to the Old Testament. The, the New Testament's actually so steeped in it that often we read it and we don't pick up on many of them. But the more, the more you read the Bible, you, the more you see that beautiful synergy between the two. So, t- so Paul says, read the whole scriptures. And then in verse 16, we get a, ver- a verse that lots of people know. It says, all scripture is God-breathed and is useful or profitable for teaching, reproof, correction, and training in righteousness. And it's interesting because actually in the Bible, there aren't many verses that are self-referential, that refer to the scriptures themselves. There's one other classic one that I know of, which is 2 Peter 1.21, which says people who gave prophecies in the Old Testament scriptures, it says they were carried along. It said they didn't just speak their best thoughts. They were carried along by the Holy Spirit. And again, you get that same sense of the scripture God breathed. And the breath of God in the Old Testament, there's a great word which sort of resonates between the spirit of God, the wind of God, and the breath of God. And you get this sense, I think, of, you know, at creation, in that extraordinary creation story, you get the, the breath of God, the spirit of God, the wind of God that sort of hovers over formlessness and and brings out form out of chaos. And then when God actually, you get this beautiful story where God raises up a human being and then breathes into that being, that human being, and life bursts out. And I think there is a sense with saying that scripture is God-breathed, that it is full of divine life by the Spirit. And you know, we make all kinds of doctrines and extract doctrines out of that one verse, in fact. But I think the key is probably the Holy Spirit, because the Holy Spirit was there at the formation of Scripture. And then the Holy Spirit, that same Spirit, is in you and me, working very hard, in my case, to form Christ in me. And so I believe that as you, and with the help of the Holy Spirit, read the scriptures, something unique happens. And life, divine life, is imparted to you. In verse 16, we see these four things that Paul draws out. Uh, as to why scripture is profitable or useful. And I love it that he says teaching, reproof, correction, and training. And often, unlike our sort of logic where you'd go A, B, C, D, the scriptures do things a bit differently. And I love it. I always, I always love to look for a sandwich. And in my, I, literally actually, but in my case, in, it seems to me that this is a bit of a sandwich where you get teaching and training to live a life that pleases God. You get that is the start, and that is the finish. And in between, there'll be times when the scriptures uh, reprove and correct us. But you know, if you've ever grown a little plant, 
and you want it to grow in a certain direction, you put the trellis up from the beginning, don't you? Don't wait for it to grow that way and then think, oh, I would have loved it if it had grown that way. You actually put the trellis in. And these plants, don't they? They kind of, they seem to, whoop, they, they grab hold of the trellis, do you think? Or is that just me? It's almost as if, yeah, they grab it and then they start growing up in a beautiful direction because you put the trellis there. So I guess what I'm saying is, um, let's go for that teaching and training. Don't like, you know, don't use the scriptures to kind of beat people over their head and give them a good old rebuke. I was part of a church that loved a rebuke. We literally had times when everyone would go around the room rebuking other people. But anyway, that's not, that's not what this is doing. Teach and train. Yeah. And, uh, you know, there will be a place for that other stuff within that. But I love that that's where things start and that's where things finish. Um, there's a brilliant thing tucked in at the very end here, which has to do with the purpose. Why do we read the Bible? It says um, that ev- so that everyone who belongs to God may be, it says here, proficient, but the word is actually complete. So that everyone who belongs to God may be complete, equipped for every good work. And I was like, I had something struck me as I read that, because I thought, if you were a climber, you're not going to climb up a cliff without a rope, are you, or a harness. You're not going to dig a massive hole without a spade. You're not going to write a letter with nothing to write with. We know that we need equipping for the things we really want to do. And what Paul is saying is that you have a call of God on your life. He is inviting you into good works, and they've got your name on them. But to be equipped for that, you need to be steeped in God's truth, his gospel, and the first teachings that, that explained and expanded why Jesus had died, why he rose from the dead, how we get to be saved and rescued in and through him. So don't try to do life without reading the scriptures and letting them read you. Now, one of the things I felt a little prompt to tell, tell you about was my mum was a pharmacist, and she had a very ancient scales, which was a sort of, I guess, it was copper color. It was probably bronze. It was probably bronze. It's big, big scales with two pans, you know, when well, presumably you put powders and kind of chemicals on these things and weighed them up. But I was reminded of that as I thought about tonight because I thought the Lord wanted to challenge us a little bit to say, if you just imagine your life a minute and you imagine those two, the scales like this, and you, 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 what the, the wondering is, is way up, way up the things that influence your thinking your decisions, your perspective about yourself, about God, about the world. If you put all of the things we, that shape us, it might be Netflix documentaries. Mm. <laughs> there must be some other things. What, what shapes how you see the world? What shapes why you make the decisions you make? And if you put everything else on that scales and then you pop, pop the Bible onto the other one, 
way up, way up the, the place of the scriptures in your life in terms of shaping you for the good works that God has called you into. Maybe it's time to shift those scales and let the scriptures have a weightier place in your life. Because you know what? Loads of us kind of set out to read the Bible, don't we? And it's so easy not to. I get up in the morning and I regularly, and I aim to read the Bible before I do anything else. And then I put a wash on. And then I look at my phone and, um, you know, then someone comes to the door and I'm still in my pajamas and it's like, oh no, you know, I meant to read the Bible. (laughs) So there'll be all sorts of things that distract us and reasons why we sometimes don't get around to it. But in terms of how to read the Bible, I would say a couple of things really quickly and obviously we would need much more time to look into this together. But read it, and they do all start with R, so you'll be able to remember these. Read it regularly, read it right, and read it in relationship. Now, these are all a lifelong journey. But interestingly, Penguin, uh, as in the publishers of books, <laughs> not an actual Penguin, um, Penguin put out an article during COVID to ponder the fact that by March and April of 2020, the sales of Bibles had rocketed so that Eden, who are an on- online Christian book company, said f- the, the, the sales of Bibles had increased by 55% just that month. So in a time of crisis, it's interesting, isn't it, that there's something in many of us that think, you know, probably a few swear words, and then think, I'm going I'm to buy a Bible. And s- maybe acts like a, like a lucky charm in some of our households. We don't actually open it, but we've got one. Uh, for others of us, we're like, wow, you know, the world's gone crazy. I'm going to read the Bible. But, but, I mean, that's both wonderful, isn't it? But I suppose my, my, my challenge to us is let's not only read the Bible in a crisis. If you read the Bible regularly, every day, it will strengthen you. You will know in yourself that you have hope uh, and you have um, a, a, a rescue plan from God that you are loved deeply by him so that when something shakes you, you, you stand strong, not only for yourself, but sometimes for others around you. So if you haven't read the Bible for a long time or ever in your life, I would say start with a little letter like Galatians because that letter is a very early letter to the churches. So you're almost getting to be a part of the church, like reeling and working out what it means that Jesus has died and been raised from the dead. Read a gospel like Mark because it's the shortest one and everybody thinks it's the first one. It's these extraordinary invitations we get to come alongside those very first Christians and then in terms of reading the Bible right, obviously not everyone would have the same um, you know, ways that they think we should read the Bible. But I would say, one, measure in your own heart. Come open, come curious, come expectant, come with faith, come humbly. As you read the Bible, let it read you. And then if you want to go deeper, re- ask yourself what it meant before you jump to a conclusion about what it means. What did it mean then to them? And how will that impact what I think it means to me now? Maybe ask yourself what kind of writing it is. Some of the Bible is poetry. 
Some are these very specific letters. Lots of it is story. So, you know, you need a bit of help with how to read that well, what it is the Holy Spirit wants you to be um, taking from um, that, that particular passage, that verse, that story. And if no one's ever told you this yet, and I feel like I'm always going on about it, from Genesis to Revelation is one huge story that is the story of every story. It's God's story, but you're in it. You're in his story. So as you read that big story and understand the big story, there are many, many stories within those. You'll have your favorites, I bet, like David, Joshua, Joseph. You'll have some stories that you always, just, they just resonate with your own life, and God speaks to them, to, to you through those particular stories. So read those stories within the big story, and when it comes down to it, there's ways sometimes that you just drawn to one little verse in the Bible, and you just kind of chew on it, you meditate on it, you imagine it. God's your shepherd. You're like, wow, I'm just going to think about that for a while. You let the Holy Spirit speak to you quite deeply about what, what that might mean for you today. So, What else would I say? Two quick other things. One, don't let what you don't understand put you off reading the Bible. There was, if you've heard of Mark Twain, he wrote those books like The Adventures of Huckleberry Finn. But he, he said this, he said, most people are bothered by those passages of scripture they don't understand, but the passages that bother me are those I do understand. And it is true, isn't it? There's plenty of bits in the Bible that are incredibly plain and that are just quite hard and challenging, like forgive, forgive. And again, it's like Paul's letter. It's out of love, isn't it? That the Bible says, forgive those who wounded you. Love those who hate you. Be filled with the Spirit. Have faith. Receive peace. Do you know what I mean? They're not hard to understand, are they? But sometimes they're difficult to do. <laughs> so why not spend time doing, you know, living in obedience to what you do understand and don't let, the, you know, the, let's work together on those bits that are confusing, bits that you don't understand. And, you know, let the gospel sit at the very center of your understanding of that story. That Jesus Christ died for you. That God gave himself for you. Now, why couldn't God have just done a download of like the sayings of God, a generic thing that would apply to everyone for all time? Why couldn't he have made the Bible a bit more of a massive Ikea like instruction manual so that you end up with a chest of drawers at the end? You know what I mean? Why didn't he just give us clear instructions that we could all follow? Would that not have been more straightforward? And I've sometimes honestly wondered why it is that this is what it is. And I've come to the conclusion that it's my third thing to read in relationship. That God's done this on purpose because he collaborated with human beings in the writing of scripture. And, he, and it means that when we read it, we have to read depending on the Holy Spirit. And we have to read in relationship together, don't we? We have to help each other to understand the scriptures. So read regularly, read right, and read in relationship. Honestly, there's some beautiful quotes, and I'm, I'm finishing now. 
But this guy, 400 years after Jesus, Augustine of Hippo, said this. He said, the Holy Scriptures are our letters from home. I love that. The Holy Scriptures are our letters from home. And Tom Wright, who lots of us all know, British theologian, said, the Bible is the book of my life. It's the book I live with, the book I live by, and the book I want to die by. Charles Spurgeon, Baptist preacher in the 19th century, said, nobody ever outgrows the scriptures. The book widens and deepens as we grow older. And actually, interestingly, Billy Graham, again, fantastic evangelist who who died in 2018, he says, we are the Bibles the world is reading So as I finish, I just go back to what I said at the beginning. You have been given this deposit, this treasure to guard and to pass on. And the first thing people know about the Bible is probably you, isn't it? Like you are the Bible. You're the first Bible that people get to read. You know what I mean? Your life and the way your life is shaped by these scriptures will be the first thing that impacts somebody who's curious about life with God. So let those scriptures shape you. Let them influence your life. And you may be here tonight. I felt like the word helpless came to me as well as we, as we were going to pray now. So, Because um, I, I wonder whether some of us have gone, like, we just feel helpless now. We feel like, I don't know where to start. I've stopped reading the Bible. Maybe I never started. And I really, I feel like I just can't do it. And I just think God might want to lift that off you tonight and re, like light a little fire in you to, to start reading the Bible again for some of you. And some of you will be one, like be, some of you will have a gift to sow the Bible, the truth of the gospel into other people's lives around you. And that would be interesting if you have a, have a feeling that might be you. So there'll be people that you're being called to invest in, to encourage. Why don't you be that person for someone else? I know many of you are the person who says, don't give up. Keep going. Let me, let me remind you of the gospel. So let's stand together and just pray before we yeah, head off tonight. We, um, we in this place love to just invite the Holy Spirit. And again, the Holy Spirit is such a key to this. Maybe you need some joy on the on your you know on the way you're reading the bible <laughs> maybe you need understanding that is from god maybe you need to wonder who god has put in your path that you are being called to invest in and if you're here with little children you could start with them that'd be a good one maybe you've stopped reading you're just wondering whether you have the courage maybe to give it another go. So come, Holy Spirit. Great. Thanks, Jay. How wonderful it is to be.